So last time we were talking about, you know, what is religion, um, primarily chapter one, and we talked about the conscience and the natural knowledge of God, and that basically we had left off with that statement toward the bottom part of page one, um, that all man-made religions are an attempt to deal with the God who is beyond, behind the natural law and the conscience. Maybe that'll get us, get us into tonight's discussion. What do you think of that? All man-made religions are an attempt to deal with the God who is behind the natural law and the conscience. Yeah, so um, man, man seeks to try to deal with the conscience, try to come up with rites or rituals that in some way tell me that, that I can measure up to this, um, or, or to comfort me with something that appeals to my reason or to my emotion that says that I am not actually <laughs> as bad as my conscience would have me believe. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these, these man-made religions teach things that contradict the natural law and the conscience. Um, what do you mean by that? Or to what extent? All right, so they change or leave out um, aspects of you know, things that are even visible from nature um, to say nothing about things that we know from the revealed word of God. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the draws or one of the allures. If the, if the religion gives me a standard, well, it has to be some standard that I can meet, um, or it's going to hold out some promise that if I can't meet that standard today, then, then I will in the next life or in the afterlife. Um, and so that, I think uh, we touched on that a little bit last time, that the only two ways, um, aside from you know, the personal work of Jesus Christ, the only two ways to deal with the conscience are to A, uh, reduce the penalty. Um, so like reduce the, the severity, the length of time um, and of, of the punishment. So if you reduce the severity from, well, it's an eternity in hell to it's only 10 billion years in purgatory, um, and then, or, or after this life, then you disappear, then it, that reduces the, the length of time of the penalty, um, or you reduce the intensity of the requirement. Um, not that you have to be holy, you just have to be you know, better than the last guy and um, don't commit these five deadly sins, but everything else is fair game as long as you tell somebody about it afterward. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're trying to deal with God um, as he reveals himself only in, in the conscience and in nature. Um, but they don't, they don't have the clarity of scripture because it's just... It's just a question of uncertainty. Um, you don't know when you've ever done enough, I think. A little bit, um, a little bit on, on the screen here. He, talking about human attempts to, to quiet the voice of conscience and the natural law, um, one of the, the major things is to invent gods that, that match up with nature in some way. Um, you think of you know, the gods of the Egyptians and, uh, and soon afterward. Um, especially the, the gods at the, during the time of the Exodus and um, at the, the split of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom, the 10 northern tribes, um, the, the king had set up a, a statue of a golden calf up in Dan and in Bethel um, so that the people wouldn't, wouldn't have to leave the northern kingdom of Israel at all, you know, like all that foolishness of going down to Jerusalem, down to the temple there. 
um, and inventing inventing things to you know gods that match up with nature kind of makes sense based on the natural knowledge of God. You're looking at things that are powerful in nature, um, or inventing gods that that kind of give their their stamp to evil, um, where the gods you know like the image on the left on the screen, um, the Greek gods are far far worse than than people you know here's here are the greek gods are getting drunk and zeus is an absolute um terrible <laughs> terrible being um and i think that's you know if the if the god is worse than i am then i must be okay and uh, and then you know, it's just kind of that, that idea of trying to deal with the conscience um or the other major way to just say that that god does not exist um, that there's no such thing as the natural law or the conscience, and that it's just, you know, a vestige of, of you know, billions of years ago, or it's a social construct. And, um, and the problem isn't something that is objectively true in my heart. The problem is my perception of how I feel. And so if, I, if I'm feeling guilty about something, I just have to find a way to not feel guilty about it. That might be the uh, that might be the most the most popular version today. Um, we'll open up to Romans one. If you have a Bible along, it says toward the end uh, or toward the bottom of page one. Romans one verses eighteen through twenty five. Right, Romans one verses eighteen through twenty five. Um, and in particular, when we read through this, um, we'll talk, we'll look for the two ways that, that human beings try to quiet the voice of the conscience. Um, reads like this. Indeed, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress, who try to suppress the truth by unrighteousness. This happens because what can be known about God is evident among them, because God made it evident among them. In fact, his invisible characteristics, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, because they're understood from the things he made. As a result, people are without excuse, because even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him as God. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claim to be wise, they have become fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God to, for images made to look like a mortal human being or like birds, four-footed animals, and crawling things. So as they followed the sinful desires of their hearts, God handed them over to the impurity of degrading their own bodies among themselves. Such people have traded the truth about God for the lie, worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who is to be worshiped uh, who is worthy of praise forever. Amen. Um, so what are the, looking at this, um, either on your own or with somebody seated nearby or what you have on your page, left on their own, human beings attempt to quiet the voice of the conscience and the natural law in one of, in either of two ways. What is one? All right, so denial of existence is uh, is is the big one. First one. 
Yeah. And, uh, and serving, serving the creation instead of the creator. Um, I think those are, those are really the, the two major ways um, in that if you deny the existence, then you're just on your own. And if you're serving created things um, in whatever form that takes, whether it takes a physical form like an idol or it's something, um, you know, such as the created wisdom of all the scientists that we have to offer, um, either way, you're serving something that has been created by God rather than the one who actually is the creator. Um, how does that play out? Let's see, we talked about this uh, maybe a little bit. How it plays out here at the, at the bottom of page one is that, you know, you end up in, in either, you know, kind of two basic camps, either some sort of rigorous ritual um, of things that you have to do to measure up um, or, or some other way to find unification with the gods. Um, and in some, sometimes, you know, that might just be, um, having enough people who believe the same thing as you and, and, you know, having the affirmation of the masses. <laughs> um, and those are, those are two major ways that, but how does it, how does it play out? Um, neither way ends well. And I guess that's kind of the, the why at the bottom of page one. Because it doesn't doesn't really um, it doesn't really deal with with God's law. Um, it doesn't answer any of God's law. You know, some examples of um, non-Christian religions that we would all of those anything that is a non-Christian religion we would call a cult, um, including you know Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses that they are a non-Christian cult. Um, and all of them basically do that same thing. There's, there's no certainty, but they're all providing their own, their own way to deal with, deal with the conscience um, and the natural law. And all of them have some sort of demand on people in order to, in order to make themselves right or in order to make themselves part of the in-group or in order to make um, God happy with them hold out the promise that, that there's going to be more. Yeah, for what? <laughs> yeah, and, and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and, and sometimes you see this um, more often online when people are a little bit more open to, to saying what they think Christianity is. Um, and, and that even Roman Catholicism would be one example that what do we, what do we believe as a Christian church body? Well, does it believe in the Trinity? That's, that's really the litmus test. And does it, does it follow the Bible? Um, all those on the on the right do deny the Trinity in some way, shape, or form. Even the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they they use some version of a Bible, um, 
the the mormons use their their annotated king james version which okay <laughs> you got your 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 cheating notes there at the bottom that's fine um and the jehovah's witness used their own their own translation um which is not really a translation because it's not a faithful to the text um but all of them deny the trinity or they 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 teach some god that is other than the triune god um to be called a christian you need to confess the trinity and that, that's the bottom line um, but there are a lot of christian groups that still that still try to work our works in or or hold out well make it conditional um, so for instance the roman catholics say if you if you sin you have to do this this and that for penance you have to um, you know pay your indulgence or um, go say your hail marys and our fathers um, if you are if you're from a Calvinist, Calvinist bent, you know, followers of John Calvin, um, he said that Jesus only died for the elect. And so your, your actions by, by your actions, by your experience or by whatever emotions you feel, um, that is supposed to demonstrate that you are part of God's elect. Um, the other side, the Arminians believe that you, that Jesus died for all people and but that you have to accept jesus as your own personal lord and savior <laughs> um and so it, it still puts the focus on human action to show that you truly are a christian that you have this this living faith that um that has actually accepted jesus and in both cases um they end up you know sadly they end up looking more at your own experience or your own actions for certainty that you are that you are a Christian rather than looking at Jesus Christ. Um, and so it's very difficult to talk about, even to talk with somebody, what is Christianity? Well, Christianity is different. And, and a lot of people who say that they've tried Christianity, um, I'd be very doubtful if they, they actually had an experience with biblical Christianity. Any other questions? So yeah, the, the top of page, the top of the second page from our chapter one reading guide, um, what is the fatal flaw of all human-made religions? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, they have, they have no peace um, that you can, you can never be sure. Um, that it's that it's eventually you know anthropocentric, um, which is man-centered. It's centered on what I do, um, but the bottom line is that it's it's completely uncertain. <laughs> like, how do you know when you've done enough? Um, like, you know, Martin Luther when he was when he was still a monk or maybe studying to be a priest, um, he went and confessed for for six hours straight. And he got like 18 steps out and then he turned around and went back in and like, I forgot something. <laughs> um, because he was told that in order to have a sin forgiven, it needed to be confessed. And if you leave anything out, then, you know, he took that to the, the logical conclusion uh, that if you leave anything out, then it's not forgiven. Any other questions? So talking about the, uh, yeah, the monster of uncertainty is really the idea there. Um, human-centered religions on your reading guide. What's the difference between a religion that is theo... That one's pretty straightforward. 
um, theocentric, you know, centered on God, anthropocentric, uh, centered on humans. Um, how about this one? Human-centered religions try to gain followers through the use of what? What is something? Guilt. Um, so we're talking about guilt uh, as an emotion. And, um, and, and understanding that all of these religions make use of the natural knowledge of God in some way. Um, they make use of, of the conscience and a natural feeling or emotion of guilt. Okay, Joe. Yeah, science, um, which is that, that appeal to this, this external knowledge. Um, and that, you know, most broadly, I think that's, you know, science is a, a good example of it. Um, and then if we're not talking about external knowledge, we're not talking about, you know, the heart and the emotion, um, then we're talking about my own human reason, um, human rationality. <laughs> and so, you know, trying to, in some, some mix of this, um, and most religions have a mix of all three of these, where you have to deal with, have to deal with that emotion of guilt, um, or that emotion of, of pride at having done something well. Um, science, whether it's something specifically like scientific or a little bit more broadly, such as an external book or external set of traditions um, that, that go beyond you. Um, but, you know, basically talking about something, some objective truth or something that's accepted as objective truth. And then uh, the last one is um, appeals to human reason or human thinking. Let's go to Romans chapter 11. As long as we're in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11, verses 34 through 36. Do we have a volunteer? Go ahead, Joe. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so what do we, what do we see about, um, about human centered religions in comparison to the true God here in verses 34 through 36? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> let's answer, answer our question first. A human-centered religion is always what? What's that? Inadequate. Yeah, Lois. And anthropocentric. Um, and, and so here in um, Romans 11, 34 to 36, um, this is at the, at the end of a section where Paul has just spent chapters 9, 10, and 11 um, talking about the doctrine of election um, and, and God's grace in election. And this is like, you know, his doxology or his closing song, um, you know, that began, that began back in verse 33. And what he's really saying is that there's, that there's a whole lot more to God than what, what we can know from, from nature and from conscience that if God wants to make himself known to us, then he's the one who has to tell us these things. Otherwise, it's, it's totally beyond us. Um, 
and and in that sense, you know, we can't figure everything out from from what nature and conscience have to say. say. Finally, um, that part I'm worth remembering that reason, reason, emotion, and science on their best day must confess that they are altogether incapable of answering with any degree of certainty the great questions of life, the very questions that religion proposes to answer. And, and I think together with that, um, that those questions are because they can't be answered. Um, if you're thinking of somebody, you know, like a secular scientist, for example, they'll try to turn it around and say, well, the, these questions, as though these questions are just for our wondering and for us to be amazed at our place in all the stars, um, as though the uncertainty were a virtue. You know, this uncertainty about where we come from um, and the hope that, oh, one day we'll figure it out. <laughs> Any questions? That, that kind of wraps up. Um, chapter one, and that will get us into chapter two. All right, chapter two. Uh, first of all, any questions or anything that um, was, was shocking or surprising to you from chapter two, talking about the Bible's inspiration and use? We don't um, don't typically spend a whole lot of time on you know Sunday morning sermon or or Bible class to to talk about manuscripts and uh, the variations among manuscripts that sort of a thing. Any questions um, on that particular topic? Oh, yeah, 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 that's an, a good example um, that that when Moses, when God told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and then the people would look at it. Yeah, um, that that when the people looked at the bronze snake on the pole that they would live. Um, and we hear that that bronze snake hung around for another you know, 500, 600 years. And, um, and then one of the kings of Judah destroyed it because the people were burning incense to it. Um, and so together, you know, the question, first of all, the question, why, why would God have uh, Moses build, you know, make this snake in the first place? And then why would the Israelites hold on to it? Um, and, and obviously, you know, the last answer, you know, why are they worshiping it? They shouldn't be. That's the easy one. <laughs> um, why would they hold on to it? Um, probably just as a, an historical artifact, I would think. Um, and then over time, maybe it grew into something more. And maybe there was a little bit of a motive of being more similar to the, the countries or the nations that were around them. Um, but then why would God have Moses build this in the first place? Um, and if you look at, you know, in Genesis, or it's a book of Numbers, Numbers 12. <laughs> um, if you're looking in, in the book of Numbers, um, Jesus refers to this later on in, in John chapter 3. Um, 
I think it's chapter three, maybe not, that, that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up. And he, and he did this in order to tell the people how he would be put to death or how he would die. Um, and so why did God have Moses make that, make that bronze snake? Um, I guess there's, there's two elements to that. That first of all, God could have airdropped Moses, you know, uh, an absolute literal ton of anti-venom so that he could distribute it and that, that all the Israelites would have their, um, their snake bites taken care of. Um, and that God could have done that, but he chose not to do that. God could have um, just taken the snakes away like he did with all the plagues, that when the people cried out or the Egyptians cried out, God took it away so that they didn't have to deal with it. Um, but instead, God, God chooses to work through, work through means. Um, so taking, I think taking it away, just taking it away is not God's preference. Working through means of some sort, working through tool of some sort is God's preference. So anti-venom is on the table <laughs> as an option. Um, but also that God chooses to, you know, the problem wasn't the snakes. The problem was the faith and the grumbling. And, um, and so God had, had Moses lift up this, this thing that, you know, it's preposterous. How in the world, I just got bitten by a snake and I look at that snake up there. How is that going to save me when I've got a dozen other things that, you know, home remedies and snake bite kits, um, or I've got, you know, eight more minutes with my family before I expire, um, that, that I think the, the snake on the pole is an example of God preferring to use means as well as preferring to hide his glory and weakness um, so that he can act on faith. Tim and then Joe. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. That, um, and the way you put that, that an idol is what man builds in order to get, builds in order to, get to God. And this, this snake is what God commanded in order to communicate his grace to the people. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh-huh and that that god is um choosing to attach his promise to this and and i think there is something to that that in dealing with the uh the particular snake um god used something that looked like looked like a snake in healing people from death, he looked. He used a man who carried the the burden of death and also and also died. Excellent question. Anything else? All right, talking about uh, the Bible and um, scriptures, inspiration and use. So the Bible, um, the, the term Bible, um, just meaning book, um, scriptures, meaning writings. Um, it's possible that, that the Bible was the very first bound book. And, and this is, you know, a technology that we still can't duplicate, even if you have a Kindle where you can flip from one to the other, and then you can like interact with it physically. You can highlight it and you can put a bookmark there and like Kindle lets you flip back and forth, but you can't not, not as nearly as quickly as, um, as with a book and with a scroll, you know, when Jesus preaches in the, in the 
synagogue in Nazareth, he's got to stand there and, and unroll the scroll for a while until he gets to the part that he's looking for. Um, and so Bible um, comes from the, the location where it was probably first used in Biblis, um, like modern day Jordan um, or Syria, somewhere up there where the, where the paper is bound and in a way that you can flip back and forth. Um, scriptures, just meaning writing. Um, when you talk about the canon, uh, the canon, um, meaning rule or, you know, as guide, you know, like a ruler. Um, and when we're talking about the canon of scripture, we're talking about the entire body of books that make up the Bible. Um, so that includes the, you know, 39 books of the old Testament and 27 books of the new Testament, um, for a total of 66. Uh, the Old Testament primarily written in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic, um, and the New, Te New, New Testament written in Koine Greek, um, which is like, you know, the, the simpler, the common Greek, Koine meaning common. Um, and then there are, there are other sources outside of scripture that are referred to in scripture, um, such as, you know, the, the Book of Wars or the, the Annals of the Kings of Judah. Um, we don't have those anymore. Um, we don't have any access to them. Um, and, it is, and it is possible that Moses even, you know, had some other documents from dating back before his time um, that would have given him, you know, like Abraham's journal. If Abraham had kept a journal, you know, it's possible that, that he did or that Moses had access to that. I mean, when they, when they left at the time of the Exodus, they knew where Joseph's bones were to bring those along. So if Jacob had brought other documents along, um, he would have been able to find those also. Um, and then the New Testament, um, there are a number of other books that, you know, every year around Lent, um, you'll see some sort of TV special or it used to be Time Magazine would always run something about the hidden gospels or, or how the church has this, uh, this plot to, to hide different books of the Bible, like the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas. Um, go ahead and read it. You know, <laughs> you, they, they haven't been hidden. Um, everybody just recognizes them for what they are or rather what they aren't, um, that they, that they are not inspired. Um, as far as, you know, the profitable ones, if you, if you were to pick one, um, like the gospel of Thomas is mostly pithy little stories about, you know, baby Jesus, um, you know, building a clay pigeon and then or clay pigeons as he's playing and then he makes them fly away. Um, or they're playing their, you know, their version of baseball and he accidentally kills the, the kid that he's playing with. And then he raises them back to life. Um, just preposterous stories like that. Um, and then, and then you probably know about the, you've heard of the Apocrypha. Um, I think it's, I think it's 12 books that for the most part fall between the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, as a translation issue, when you're, when you're talking about the Apocrypha, I think it's, and, and Luther thought it also, that it's good to include or to let people have access to it. Um, I don't think it's worth including in the, you know, between the Old Testament and New Testament, because then that gives the impression that it's unequal with everything else in scripture. Um, but you can, Concordia has a very nice um, apocrypha with, with some commentary that kind of sets the scene. Uh, for the most part, it's, um, it's poetry um, and some history, like First Maccabees is, is a good deal of history about the Maccabean revolt. 
Um, second Maccabees is a little bit, a little bit more of uh, the comic book version, I guess, of 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 that same period of time in history. Um, but then the reasons why we don't include that in in the Bible is, first of all, um, the Jewish people never accepted the Apocrypha um, as as scripture, although they they certainly knew about it. Um, second of all, it's never quoted in the Old or New Testament. It's never referred to. Um, third of all, Jesus never referred to it. And he referred to the three sections of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, so the law, thinking about, you know, the five books of Moses, um, or I don't know if that would also include some of the, the history like Samuel and, and Joshua. Um, the prophets, thinking about the major and minor prophets, and the Psalms, um, like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and that. So Jesus refers to, refers to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He quotes from the law and the prophets and the Psalms in various times. Um, so that's another reason. So the Jewish people never accepted it. Um, it's never quoted in the Old or New Testament as, you know, at all. Um, Jesus never referred to it. Um, number four, the fourth reason is that it does include teachings that are contradictory to the rest of Scripture. Um, so the Apocrypha is where the Roman Catholic Church um, has as their reason for an understanding of purgatory. Um, so you can, you can find it there, I guess, <laughs> if you look hard enough. And the Apocrypha, not only having false doctrine, it also glorifies, um, it glorifies the suicide of one of the guys in Maccabees, either first or second. And, uh, and that's, that's out of line with the rest of scripture. Um, and then, and together with that, that the early church did not, did not accept the Apocrypha, that they certainly had it available, but it wasn't included um, with the rest of their, their scriptures. Yeah. We never go off track. Yeah, the Song of Solomon, and, and why is it included? Um, and, and why doesn't it make sense to my uh, 21st century American eyes reading it in English? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think together with that, the, the short answer is that, or well, I guess the, the answer, it's not too long, is that um, the, the book Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is supposed to be a poetic picture of romantic love within a marriage. And, um, and for the most part, that's as far as people go for interpretation. Some push that a little bit further to say, well, since, it, since it's a picture of romantic love within a marriage, then it must also be a picture of, of God's love, you know, Christ's love for his church. Um, I don't know if I go that far, um, but and I have to think about that one a little bit more. Um, but to say that I would, I would say kind of that middle ground that it's a, it's a proper, you know, it's a picture of romantic love within a marriage and that generally speaking, marriage is supposed to be reflected in or an image of um, Christ's love for his church. And I think you could say that without drawing a direct comparison to all the details of Song of Songs. 
Um, and then the other part, why doesn't it make sense, is that I think there's, there's a lot of um, terminology and pictures that really don't communicate in, in, our, in our language today. Like, what do they mean? <laughs> Um, when he's talking about like, you know, the vineyard or the little foxes out in the, out in the vineyard or the field or whatnot. Um, and that some of the, the terminology is basically like a code book <laughs> and somebody, somebody should do this. Like a couple of years ago, Concordia wrote, like, uh, had somebody write like a thousand page commentary on the song of songs, which was probably 800 pages too long. <laughs> um, but, but I think it would be helpful for, for an English reader to say, you know, here's a list of 10 or 20 of the images or words that you'll hear most often. And here are, you know, an English equivalent of, of that terminology, um, basically to put the poetry into, into words that we understand, um, rather than leaving it as a metaphor that, that works in Hebrew, but the metaphor doesn't communicate um, unless you want to make it such that children can't read it, <laughs> which was kind of the rule in, in the, um, the Old Testament and, and early New Testament times was that children weren't allowed to read it until after they had their bar mitzvah or their bat mitzvah um, and were at least 12 years old. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the slightly longer version. <laughs> And you got past Leviticus? <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm <laughs> mm hmm Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And I, and I think um, just with that, that basic, that basic truth of, you know, this is a picture of uh, romantic love within marriage. And, um, and that part of, you know, maybe part of God's purpose isn't to point specifically to, you know, a particular doctrine about God, but just to provide a, an excellent example of, um, of something that God created to be good. But that the world, you know, in the, the land of Canaan and, uh, and the world ever before and since um, has tried to try to desecrate in every possible way. Um, and, and, and you've got that, you know, take, for instance, pop culture and, you know, every sitcom from the last 40 or 50 years um, that you've got, you've got kind of this image of the guy is a dope and, uh, and, you know, like your Homer Simpson or Peter Griffin um, or, you know, maybe the guy in Married with Children. Um, that the guy is a dope and that the relationship and the, the disagreements within the relationship um, and neither one living up to what a husband or a wife ought to be um, provides all the, fought, all the fodder for the laugh track. And, uh, and maybe God was like, oh, by the way, I'll just, I'll just tuck this in here as a reminder that, that marriage is uh, intended to be a, a good thing and a blessing from God. And, um, and that it's supposed to be beautiful and not, you know, not bashful, but, um, but definitely has, has the proper place. Yeah. Joe. Yep. Uh, Solomon as, you know, as far as, as far as we know, written by Solomon. Um, and it, it was accepted early on, um, you know, from the old Testament, old Testament times as canonical. 
No, they never accepted the Apocrypha as, as scripture, um, even though they, you know, they wrote it. <laughs> yeah, the Jew, Jewish people wrote the Apocrypha, uh, somebody who was a Jewish person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the the book of Ruth. Um, there's there's two there's two ways where you see you can see Jesus uh, foreshadowed in excuse me in the book of Ruth, and that's with the the idea of the, the kinsman redeemer, um, and and then the other one would be just the the literal line of the Savior, um, where you know Ruth's great grandson was was David or, or Jesse. Um, and in that way, you know, it is, it is just, you know, some, some history, um, but it also, it's history, but it also shows us, you know, God's work at a time that was stressful um, for, for his people and God preserving that line of the savior and also incorporating um, this foreigner into the line of the savior. Um, this foreigner who's, yeah, <laughs> whose nation was, was, wasn't always on very good terms with the Israelites. You know, from day one of the Israelites showing up, the Moabites were like, oh, this is bad news. We got to get rid of them somehow. <laughs> Anything else? Any other questions? I almost thought there'd be more questions about, uh, about the New Testament, but <laughs> that'll be coming up here with the, uh, the variata and the textual criticism. Um, so the variata, what are the, what are the variata? That's uh, plural where there is, um, is variations. Yeah. Yeah, a, a little bit like the game of telephone. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, so the, the variata are, uh, are the variations in the textual, textual manuscript. Um, and most of the time, I mean, first of all, about, about the variata, that there's, that there's nothing that changes a doctrine. Um, there, are, there are, you know, it's mo mostly something small like Jesus the Christ or Christ Jesus the Lord is the, the variata or the variation of it. The variant, I guess, is the singular um, and we typically group these into, um, I think, two basic categories, like an error of sight and an error of ear, um, and that it's, that it's understandable how this happens. If somebody is copying from one manuscript to, to another, um, there's error of sight, such as you're copying from this line and writing over here. And when you go back to the original manuscript that you're copying from, um, maybe the same word is in the line below and you jump down to that line by accident as you're copying. And so you omit, um, you know, part of a line. Um, another variation of I, um, talking about just a, when you, when you omit a particular letter, um, or usually it's like looking at the wrong word. Um, another one would be if somebody you know, was writing along and then the, the scribe says, oh, I need to you know, put something in the margin here. Um, and that would happen, that would have happened more often in the like 800s to, you know, the middle ages, 800s to 1200, 1500, somewhere in there. 
um, where they would add, add marginal notes. And then when the next person looks at that, is that a marginal note or is that their commentary? Um, does it belong in the, in the body of the text or did he just mess it up? Um, errors of ear. Um, we've got, we've got something called copy machines and they, the scribes, you know, talking about, um, the monasteries for the most part, um, they would have something, you know, a, a room <laughs> and one guy up at front with the manuscript and then, you know, five or 10 or 15, um, monks sitting at their desk, copying down what he re what he reads. And so you read it out and, um, and maybe, you know, if he read it improperly or they write it down improperly um, or they don't know the language properly enough to spell it, um, or there are a, no a number of words that, that sound alike, um, such as the word weigh, um, or talking about which way do I go or how much does it weigh? Um, and from context, you can figure that out. Um, but so that, that's, that's more often an error of ear, um, talking about things that, it, you look at the word and you, you know, you know what it sounds like when you read it out loud, but it's not the word that really belongs there. Um, that's usually pretty obvious. Um, and, and I think on the screen, um, the image there is that we don't have the autographs anymore. The autograph would be the original, the original manuscript. Um, you know, what Paul or Peter or Mark or when Peter's dictating to Mark or Paul is dictating to Silas or something like that, um, the original writing. Um, any, any ideas as, you know, blessings or benefits as to why we don't? I think Nehushtan would be a good example. <laughs> He fell down and his gut spilled forth. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that, that's, another, that's another category um, that doesn't, I mean, this would be specifically about manuscripts and talking about um, some apparent contradictions, um, you know, Judas, that he went out and hanged himself or that, um, that, he, that he burst open. Um, I think it's <laughs> that one in particular, um, I would say that both are true. If Judas ended up using a rope that was like 15 feet long, um, or, you know, went over the cliff or, um, he's got a very long drop that the, that the muscle there can't hold everything. Um, or if he, you know, I, I think it's entirely possible that in that case, you know, both would be true. Um, there are other, um, apparent or supposed contradictions that, that I'm sure we'll, we'll get to a few of those. Um, for the most part, most of the apparent contradictions can be solved by, by putting the evidence, you know, the, the manuscript evidence together, you know, like trying to put together a chronology of all the Easter Sunday morning appearances. Um, it takes a little bit of work, but you can, you can kind of figure it out. Um, yeah. 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 
yeah i i think that makes a lot of sense like um yeah hope everybody had supper right like like that raccoon over on perrysburg holland last week you know it's leg is sticking up in the air <laughs> um and and that would make sense with the time frame that if he if he did it by our calendar you know like late thursday night or very early friday morning and then it's the sabbath day and nobody's like i'm not touching a dead body on the sabbath day because it's the passover sabbath and this is a big deal um and that that judas wasn't discovered for some time um yeah gruesome um so then also when we're talking about uh variants um let's see what else were we talking about there oh talking about different manuscripts over time and if you if you had grown up with the king james version and some you still find these people floating around that uh <laughs> yeah not just not just that they grew up with the king james version sorry i cut myself off um but that they but that they're like you know every bible since the king james version has deleted passages from the bible um and, and, and if you look at it, it's like, you know, in first Timothy, there's a line or two, I think, um, maybe in first John. Um, and then there's the question of where do you put that, that little section in the gospel of John? Um, and, and that's, that's another textual question where when the King James Bible was translated, they had a, a set of manuscripts that dated back, um, only, only so far. And since then, more manuscripts have appeared or um, have become known that go back a lot further that demonstrate that those portions of scripture weren't there. Um, and for the most part, I don't, you know, it's people that try to make a mountain out of a molehill. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll try to find one of those, like the comic books, comic book pamphlets that they hand out. Don't you, don't you want the whole word of God? Aren't you concerned about these, you know, three sentences that aren't in the NIV? What are they trying to hide from you? It's like some grand conspiracy. Um, and, and by contrast, you know, an understanding of, of how manuscripts work is, is helpful to say, well, we've got, we've got um, these manuscripts that have both very early, so it's a very old manuscript, and also it's very widespread. Because um, we've got the, if you think of the, the major centers of Christianity, um, I'll try to do this on, you've got like Alexandria down in Egypt. Um, number two, you've got Jerusalem. And number three, you've got Antioch in Syria. Uh, number four, you've got Constantinople, and then number five, you've got um, you've got Rome. That those are the five major um, centers of Christianity, and you know the five places where you know a bishop had been um, in the very early days of the Christian Church. You know, church leaders. And so, if you've got a, a manuscript or a you know a section of scripture that is very early, um, so it's an old manuscript and it's very widespread then you can have a very high degree of confidence that, you know, this is, this is correct. And this is probably more ancient than, than even the date of the, of the manuscript. If you've got an error that comes in late, um, or it's only in one area, um, like some of the manuscripts, like Egypt is great for preserving stuff it's so hot and dry. Um, but they also have a, a particular twist um, that over time, some false doctrine, particular false doctrines came out of Egypt and, um, and maybe influenced some of the translations. Um, that if, it, if this variant only comes from one place or it comes later on, then you can see, well, it was either a mistake or maybe somebody who believes this, this false 
belief, you know, a heretical sect of Christianity was trying to, was trying to change scripture and convince the people there that this is what scripture actually says. Um, and so it's, it's fairly, you know, after some time, you can kind of put it together to see, um, to see what is, what is true and what is not, and, and what is it that God has, um, son, seen fit to preserve for us. Um, but the bottom line is that our confidence doesn't rest in the, the number of manuscripts, um, but our confidence rests in the promise of God to pre, to, that his word is inspired and that he would preserve that word for us. Um, the, uh, I'll look at this chart for next time also. Um, I'll have to jot that down. That the number of manuscripts is, is just a nice bonus that um, every, every Latin student today um, at some point read Caesar's, Caesar's Gallic Wars, the account of his war in France. And the earliest manuscript that we have is, um, is from like 800 years after. And you basically, if this was it, and then you, you tear off um, a little bit off each side so that you've got the middle, you know, 60% or 70%. Um, and that's what they have for Caesar's Gallic Wars. Um, and 3,000 pieces and, and manuscripts dating all the way back to, in, when we're talking New Testament textual criticism, dating all the way back to 126 AD. So within like 30 years of John, the, um, the apostle John passing away, we've got a, a fragment of the gospel of John um, from, I think it's from Egypt. Because um, one of the cool things is once they, once they were done using a manuscript, they just put it in a, in a room or, you know, dropped it into this, you know, cavernous hole in the ground that they had built um, for disposal of that. And then they seal it up or forget about it. And then we discover it. And we've got this gigantic pile of fragments with, with words written on that. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that's where, um, you know, an under, or at least the basic understanding of the, uh, the academic science behind this um, is that it is helpful to say that, you know, number one, our promise is that God inspired his word that these books were inspired from the day they were written. Um, and at the same time, God has provided or preserved a literal mountain of manuscript evidence. And we can, we have, we can have a great degree of confidence because of God's promise and also because of all the manuscript that he's preserved for us. Um, yeah, but, but even so, you know, trying to, trying to read the EHV in, in church, when I'm familiar with the NIV 1984, you know, the beloved one that I grew up on since 1993. <laughs> yeah, I catch myself every now and then. That is going to wrap us up. Um, next time, we will pick up with the doctrine of verbal inspiration on your reading guide there. And um, I'll, print, I'll print some more of the, the chapter three reading guides uh, for Sunday. Actually, I can do that right now after we close. We'll close with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you uh, for your promise to preserve your word. And thank you for your promise to preserve your church. We ask you to continue to keep that promise among us, uh, to give us confidence in your word and, um, and joy in reading it, and, uh, and confidence that you will preserve your church here and around the world to the glory of your name. We pray. Amen. Thank you very much.